Well, hello again, everyone. It's another Runout Radio. And, of course, we're brought to you by Lukasi Hybrid Cues and the TAP League System. Those are run by good folks. Please think of them when you're going to join a league or form a league or when you're going to buy a cue. Uh, I'm Jerry Forsyth, alongside Mike Howerton. Mike, the U.S. Open was interesting. Uh, yeah, you could say that. Four separate rooms, a bold experiment that oh, went awry. Well, yes, it did. Um, I heard from one person at the event, and you and I were there for the entire week, I heard yep. from one person at the event that he thought the new venue was a positive thing. Overwhelmingly, everyone else uh, disagreed, and I think Barry probably disagrees too, based on the talk that we were hearing before the event was even uh, complete, that he would be in another venue next year. Yeah, he's going to go back to one big room. Uh, wouldn't surprise me at all to find us back at the Chesapeake Convention Center. But we'll see. That announcement is still to come. Um, but payment issues aside, which Berman has owned up to, the the week of pool was a fantastic week of pool. I mean, we had some matches and some, some shots that were just, I mean, just total world class. I mean, all week we had dream matchups that uh, you rarely find in a major event because, all the big names were there, and they sure kept running into one another. They did. Um, you know, with the past handful of U.S. Opens being dominated by uh, Darren and Mika, the big story at this one seemed to be the play of the Filipinos. Um, I mean, three of the final four were Filipino players. Um, Efren, who many, myself included, thought would never really challenge for a major title like that again was right there up to the end and and of course the fans love every minute of Efren doing anything at the table that's absolutely true and and Efren on that show table blossomed very very well this week and came with some shots that had people just going oh my god and of course there was the the fluke-in nine-ball in the side pocket where uh, he was teasing the ball to come into the side <laughs> pocket. And I think he won the hearts of anyone whose heart he didn't already own when he did that. Um, but, you know, the the one guy I got to stand back and go, oh, my God, was Shane Van Boning. I mean, oh, my God, he just destroyed people. And you know he doesn't he doesn't do it with a lot of a lot of fanfare. Um, I mean, really, we were watching the brackets and we were watching some of the matches, and it wasn't until they got down to maybe six players that you had to st take a step back and say, "Wait a minute, Shane's still in this thing." You know, Shane could could very well win this. Yeah, here comes Shane. <laughs> and the finals, yeah. for anyone who didn't get to see them, oh. I wholeheartedly recommend uh, buying the DVD from Accustats. Um, one of the most well-played final matches, um, you know, both guys took advantage of opportunities, many racks strung, um, 
I think Shane made one, or I think Shane missed one ball, and he had that he had a problem with a jump shot early on. But other than that, it was it was perfect pool. I mean, I would be very curious to see what the AccuStat ratings were for both players. I, w- I would too, because Shane went out to a big lead, seven or eight rack lead, and then Dennis got to the table and said, "Okay, you had fun. Now I'm going to have fun." And he put together a long string and brought him close. And then Shane came back to the table, and Dennis just sat and watched the rest of the match. I mean, it was it was great pool. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, very well. It was it was a a fitting end to the tournament. Um, the two players who probably played the best all week, uh, competing and and bringing their best to the match. Uh, you couldn't ask for much. Well, you could have asked for a lot more at the event, but you couldn't have asked for much more in the finals. Yeah. Oh, before we go any further, I do have to put in a tease. We've got two great guests this week. Yes, we do. People are really, really going to enjoy. Uh, we've got the new captain of the Moscone Cup team, C.J. Wiley, and we've got the ever-microphone-friendly Keith McCready, Earthquake himself. So uh, this is our 50th show. We wanted to have some special guests. I think we found them. Well, we had such a good time with Keith uh, earlier in the year when we did the the Grady Matthews episode that we wanted to bring him back sooner than later so we could really talk about his career and his life. And, and CJ, I think, will have some interesting insight into Moscone Cup and the players and how he's going to prepare them, which, by the way, we do have... Uh, one full Moscone Cup team and 80% of another one complete. Yeah, it's that 20% of the other one that's not complete that's most interesting. Uh, this is a new one to me. I've never seen them have a playoff for the last spot before, but they're going to do that in Treviso, Italy, during the uh, Euro Tour stop there. Uh, you're going to have three great players, Oliver Ortman. Uh, Albin Ocean, yes, that's Jasmine's brother for the millionth time, <laughs> and uh, Nikos Economopoulos, uh, who was uh, leading, I don't know if he led the Euro Tour at year end or not, but he, he led it for a while, and he had one or two wins on the Euro Tour, uh, one uh, sharp shooting guy. Um, those three are going to have a, uh, you know, one shot at it, uh, event among themselves uh, in Treviso, and uh, we'll be watching. We'll let you know who wins. You know, speaking of, of Nikos and Albin, um, a lot of the American fans may not be familiar with these two guys, but uh, Albin was in Virginia at the U.S. Open, along with uh, Nick, it's either Malai or Malage. I'm, I'm not sure how it's pronounced. Malage. Nick Malage, yeah. Nick had just won the Euro Tour stop, beating Albin in the finals before coming over to the States to play in the U.S. Open. And we heard from a number of different fans, you know, who are these guys? I mean, they can really, really play. And Moscone Cup is going to be quite a stage for for one of those, uh, unless Oliver wins it, everyone knows who Oliver is. But, you know, Albin and Nikos have the opportunity to really show the world what they can do. Well, by the way, that Milaj fellow who just won that Eurotour event, he shot so well in his first match. I don't remember who he played, but he destroyed him. And he shot so well that Jay Helford came by 
and, and he was, Melage was warming up for his second match, and I said, uh, there's a dark horse that could win this thing. And Jay says, yeah? And I said, uh, oh, yeah, you should see the way this guy shoots. He just ran over the last guy. No problem at all. I don't think he knows how to miss. And Jay says, he ain't got a prayer. Well, from, <laughs> from there, Melage went two and out and just got murdered both times. <laughs> <laughs> I got a bow to Jay on that one. <laughs> so we've got either Oliver, Albin, or Nikos uh, teaming yeah. up with Darren Appleton, Chris Melling, Nick Vandenberg, and Nils Fayen. That's an awfully strong team. It is, but it's got one huge weakness, a vacuum that I don't know that can be filled, and it's the reason I think America is going to win this thing this year. All right, fill us in. No Ralph Suquet. And, you know, I talked to Ralph at the U.S. Open, and I mentioned to him that it was my personal opinion that if a team won Moscone Cup, all five members should come back and defend the title the following year. Now, that's just my opinion, and it's certainly not Matchroom's opinion. Uh, right. Ralph said, look, you know, I had a bad year. He said, if you play bad, you don't deserve to play on the Moscone Cup. I mean, Ralph Ralph comes out and calls a spade a spade. He, he knows he did not have a good year, and he didn't feel like he deserved to be on Moscone Cup. Yeah, but you know you can read it in the you can read it in the faces of the European team members. If they come out and they have a bad match and they and they lose, when they're walking off the the floor, you can see it in their eyes. You know, I messed up, but it's okay. Ralph will pull me out. <laughs> <laughs> and and you know he's been Mister Dependable for for Europe. I think he he's a real. I think he's their uh, their cornerstone. And I think he's going to be hard shoes to fill. Well, the American team, we know all of those players. Um, Shane, Mike DeShane, which is interesting that Mike DeShane played well enough all year to skip the U.S. Open and was still number two on the points list. Yeah. Uh, Brandon Schuff, which I think will be a welcome addition, although there are definitely questions there. Not about his ability. I mean, Brandon can... I think Brandon can stay with uh, anybody in any tournament, but that's going to be a brutal, brutal venue to make your Moscone Cup debut. Uh, also, Dennis Hatch, who will probably fade that venue with no problem at all. And Johnny Archer, I, I believe this is his 99th Moscone Cup team. Yeah, something like that. It's way <laughs> up there. It's, it's either 99th or uh 16th I'm not sure but um, Brandon I think you know what I think he's going to feed off that that excitement at uh, Moscone Cup that kid's got a positive attitude I think he's going to turn that energy into position play I mean we know he can make balls and I I think he's going to I think he's going to eat it up well I think it's going to be important that he has someone like Dennis or to Shane, well, I mean, basically anybody on the team who is is there alongside him, just in case. I mean, if he can come out and win uh, the first couple matches that he's involved in, Europe could yeah. be in trouble. But if he struggles and that crowd feeds off of American players' struggles, uh, it, it could be ugly. I mean, we 
you know, we talk about it every year, and Matchroom talks about it every year. Um, Coltrane was never the same after Moscone Cup. Oh, you're absolutely right. But this is a totally different team. And Captain CJ, if he sees Brandon Schuff sort of getting down on himself, or he can just send him off to go into a corner over there with uh, Mike DeShane and Dennis Hatch and let them fire him up a little bit. And uh, if he needs, if he gets overexcited and needs to be calmed down, he just shoves him over into a corner with Shane and Johnny. So I think he's got the medicine he needs to uh, to doctor any ills that hit Shuff. And you know, CJ is an interesting choice for captain. Um, definitely not one I was expecting. I was floored. Um, I had no no clue that um, that he was in the mix. Um, you know, since he, <laughs> uh, since he took possession of the Moscone cup there for a few years and, and kept it on his premises in Dallas, because he had the same view you did. He felt that the, that the team that lost the cup should, or that won the cup should have the chance to come back and defend it. Um, yeah, we, it did surprise me when, uh, when he was named, but I think he's, I think it's, uh, I think it's a courageous pick. I think it's a bold pick. I think it's uh, a way to get some something new going on the team because CJ is definitely a different kind of team captain from what America's had in the past. Um, he's had the America's gone the uh, calm, um, studious route in the past, and now they've got a guy who's got some new age ideas under his belt, and well. You're going to hear him in the interview uh, that we're going to do with him here in a few minutes, and uh, uh, he's an impressive fellow. Oh yeah, um, I certainly don't want to don't want to belabor uh, you know past choices for captain, but last year it seemed like there were four players on one side and one player on the other, and I know that everyone said the right things and and. You know, everyone made nice, and no, there are no problems here. But you know, you could see a, a division, kind of like we've seen in the past with the U.S. Moscone Cup team. And this year, I don't think CJ is going to allow that in any way. Yeah, I think he'll have pretty good luck controlling his charges. I really do. Looking forward to seeing what he does. Oh yeah. Uh, and and real quick before we we get on to our guests because yeah. I'm looking forward to to hearing what they have to say. Um, Darren did not threepeat the U.S. Open, however, he did win the Challenge of Champions. Um, Yay! <laughs> he beat Dennis Orcoyo in the finals. Uh, it, from the way it was described, um, they were playing a sudden death game because they play that that format for television out there where they play two sets and if they're tied after two sets they they play one game for it and it sounded like Dennis was running out the final rack and scratched on a six ball and and, and the description was that Darren was just shocked that he was back up at the table and Darren's the kind of guy that can get out with a seven eight nine ball in hand pretty easily most of the time um, and then also Guy Young Kim, no surprise, um, won the ladies' tournament of champions. Maybe a little bit of a surprise that our newest member of the BCA Hall of Fame, Karen Kaur, was the one who played her in the finals. Um, certainly never one to take anything away from Karen's game, but I just didn't expect she was going to 
have brought her game all the way back to beating Allison in sudden death and then competing in the finals. I mean, I certainly think she's capable. I just thought it might take her a little bit more time to shake the rust off, but apparently that's not the case. Well, you would think it would take some more time than that to shake the rust off. She literally hasn't played in a year and a half. Well, she's played on the on the Newt Tour, and that's about it as far as I know. But knowing Karen, she's probably putting in six, eight hours a day practicing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she probably is. She probably is. Anyway, she was a great inductee. It was a marvelous ceremony, and George Z and Karen go in. Um, I thought Ava did a real good job of inducting her, and uh, uh, it was a proud moment for all of us who've watched Karen through the years. And, and that dinner has really become a highlight of the U.S. Open. Um, it's it's probably one of the favorite things that happens at the U.S. Open because you get to see the players in a role other than wanting to beat the other one, and, and you know they let their guard down and, and they. They congratulate each other, and, and it, it, it's just a very nice moment. I mean, uh, Karen teared up a little bit there. Uh, Ava was great doing the induction speech, and, and it was also nice to see the the Hall of Fame members who were at the tournament uh, there to pay tribute to Karen. It, it was all around a great, a great dinner. Yeah, I had a good time at that dinner. I think that... Uh... Mike Pinozo and, and uh, his crew do a real good job of putting that thing on every year. Definitely. But enough talk about uh, the U.S. Open. Let's get to one of our guests. Who you want to talk to first, Keith or CJ? Let's talk to CJ. I think we've got him on the line. Well, as we mentioned earlier, our first guest today is the new captain of the Moscone Cup team, CJ Wiley. CJ, hello, Jared. Hey. You like the news? <laughs> oh, it was uh, it was a shock to tell you the truth. You know, it uh, was something I wasn't expecting, and um, I just uh, really didn't know what to think about it. It kind of threw me for a loop for a little while. I uh, had some definite plans that I was working on and some projects, and I pretty much had to uh, put one on a shelf and you know, speed up the other one and then kind of uh, rearrange my life a little bit, at least for the next, uh, you know, 60 days as far as that went. How did you find out that uh, you've been chosen? Well, uh, Luke uh, emailed me and actually on Facebook, I believe, and asked me if I would consider the position. And... um, you know, I didn't have to think long. I said, uh, "Sure, I would. Uh, I would certainly consider it, and I would do it if I had the opportunity." So that's kind of how I got rolling. Uh, CJ, I mean, let's face it you've been you've been out of the game for a while, and while that certainly doesn't affect your abilities as a pool player, I wonder how familiar are you with players like Mike DeShane and Brandon Schuff. I mean, do you know these guys well enough to to know what needs to be said in order to properly motivate them? Well, I know uh, Brandon pretty well. I, I mean, as far as that goes, I went to uh, dinner with him and was around him, and I actually played him, uh, he pointed out, as I saw him in Las Vegas. I was out there, and he uh, 
told me about playing me, and I have this saying, you know, I've played thousands of people, and, and I don't particularly uh, put them in a specific file sometimes. So he pointed out that he played me in uh, at the U.S. Open at Barry Berman's uh, pool room. And then it hit me because I remember playing him, and I remember that uh, sometimes when, when I gamble with people, I feel like if I miss, some really bad things are going to happen. <laughs> you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get beat. It's like one of those uh, fights, you know, where you just have to really turn it on more out of uh, uh, protection, you know, you know, instead of. I just have that sense, I guess, after gambling so many times, and, and when I played Brandon at the U.S. Open, we played a race to fifteen for. Uh, I don't know, $500 or $1,000, whatever it was. It wasn't a huge amount of money. But when he started playing, I could tell he was he was trying to hurt me, you know, <laughs> as far as that goes, as far as the competition part of it. And I, uh, I buckled up and played the type of game I do when somebody's coming after me like that. And he said it looked like I was running out on that tight four and a half by nine like it was a bar table. But really, you know, you know, of course, I wasn't going to let him know, and I have a pretty good way of hiding it, but uh, I was just playing out of self-defense. But but as I got to know Brandon, you know, after that, unrelated to that, um, he's just a, a really good person, it seemed to me like. And, and like I said, my senses are pretty, pretty uh, well-developed. But he also has that really high gear where I thought to myself, you know, this is a, this is a really good... I knew he was being considered as well, and I thought this is a really good choice for the team. Well, besides Brandon, you've got Dennis Hatch and and Mike DeShane, who are, are are can be fairly similar players. You know, they both sometimes wear their emotions on their sleeves. Um, there, there's a small history between them already from you know previous tar matches. Um, do you have something in mind, or do you have an approach in mind that? will keep them focused on what they need to be focused on? Well, I uh, met Mike DeShane when he won the 10-ball championship here in Dallas, so, uh, you know, I had a pretty good first impression of him as far as player. And I know he's had uh, some controversy with other players, but I think one of the advantages that I have is, and I told them this in private conversations, you know, whatever issues they've had, whatever problems, whatever challenges, I can assure you I've had the same ones at some level. So, you know, feel free to, to discuss these type of things, and uh, I'm going to keep them confidential. And, and, and here I'm just briefly going over them, not in specifics, but uh, I know Dennis and Mike <clears throat> had had some um, issues, and, and I got to the bottom of that right away, and, and uh, they're in the past, you know, and what's past is past. I mean, it happens, you know, we've all had our issues with people, especially in competition, you know, when you're under the gun, you're under the fire. I mean, we all have said and done things, I think, that we normally wouldn't have done. Some of us are more composed, like the Efrens and, and people uh, like that, but, but still, I've seen him a little out of character at times, too, so, you know, I, I kind of put their mind at ease, and uh, I am sure that they are going to be, uh, you know, act as a team unit and be perfectly okay with each other. And I like 
you know, I like the dynamic of their playing styles. Mike DeShane, very explosive, very good break. Uh, you know, he plays the right way as far as I'm concerned. And, uh, you know, I, I'd already heard from Johnny Archer because <clears throat> Johnny, I'm, you know, I talked to him first because he has a better understanding of these players because he's been around them recently a lot more. And, and some of the ones that I haven't been around much, he has a pretty good idea. And, and he was really positive about, about everybody, but he also gave me certain character, you know, uh, uh, subtleties that, that might help me as far as developing the team. And, uh, you know, Mike was, he said he did really well the first uh, time, but he probably was going to excel this time and had confidence in him. Now, Dennis and I have a long history together. I, I knew Dennis back when he was 15. It was the first time I played him, I believe. He was like 15 and I was 19 or maybe 20. And um, he has always been a phenomenal talent. And he also, under the you know heat of fire, will sometimes say his mind or do things that uh, he may not have done if he wasn't in that particular situation. But he's just a really aggressive, intimidating player. And I've talked to some of the very best players in the world, and uh, they have agreed that Dennis was one of the most intimidating players there was. Because there's two or three different types of personalities that... that uh, are a little tougher to play against, but, but one of the worst type as far as uh, that goes is the ones that you feel like might not let you back the table, that might actually beat you 11 to nothing. And uh, Dennis is one of those guys. I mean, he can beat anybody 11 to nothing on a given day if everything goes right, and we all know it. <laughs> so <laughs> that's another thing. I've played Dennis several times, and i played him in uh, money matches, and i played him in tournaments, and it's the same type deal. Some of those guys, you just hope their break's not working, and you just try to keep them away from the table. So I'm really glad that uh, Dennis and Mike are on my team, and I'm not <laughs> playing against them. I mean, it, it makes this a lot easier to do what I think I'm groomed to do which is uh, more along the management and uh, the coaching side because I know the playing stuff inside out because I've played so many matches and I think I know the subtleties of, of how to win. And uh, without the pressure of having to do that and uh, play at the same time, which I had to do in 1996 when I was the player and the captain, this is actually going to be easier because I can focus completely on the other players and and not on my, my own game as much. I'd like to go back just for a moment to Brandon Schuff because uh, a lot of people don't know Brandon as well as they do the, the other players because he's in, the, in tournament play, he's kind of low-key. He just goes out there and cleans the balls off the table and, and beats people. Uh, right. But the thing that impresses me really about Brandon is his attitude. He's got one of the most positive attitudes I've ever seen on a pool player. Yes, I mean, I haven't seen him play a whole lot of matches, but it seems like that's just his real personality. You know, he's kind of uh, easygoing, and, you know, that uh, that can be a little bit of a detriment. You know, when you start getting into the higher levels of uh, competition, you know, you you, uh, you really you have to buckle down and be able to, um, 
you know, put on that warrior mask, so to speak, and, and be able to do that. I I have no doubt that, that he's able to do that. I also have a feeling uh, he can do it better. I mean, he's still young and still developing, so I think it would be uh, something that, I, you know, I doubt if he thinks he knows it all. I don't think he's that type of person, and I think he knows he's yeah. developing. And, and I think he, you know, from what he said to me, he looks forward to uh, to being, you know, kind of uh, under my guidance to a certain extent because he does know my reputation, and, and I think all the players that have uh, been around for quite some time know, you know, that I do have a record of, of winning, and, and they know that my... Uh, my mental approach is really strong. So <clears throat> what I'm hoping happens is uh, not only do we go through this experience and come out triumphant, but, but I also maybe help each and every one of these guys a little bit, you know, in their own personal games and development uh, along the way. And Brandon certainly is, is the most impressionable because he's the youngest and, and probably – I think we'd agree he's the least experienced as far as big matches, and especially here in this Moscone Cup. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> your final two are both heroes of the game, Shane Van Boning, Johnny Archer. Um, it's hard to find a weakness between the two, the two of them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, Johnny and I have a long history. I went through uh, when Johnny first started coming on and, and when the major tournaments was in the early 90s. And, uh, you know, I was right there. He was always considered, uh, you know, he was he was a great tournament player from the beginning. And we gambled several times together. And, you know, I, I was considered the best gambler, and he was pretty much... Uh, one of the best tournament players and became the best tournament player of the nineties. Uh, I believe a lot of people would agree on that. Of course, nobody agrees on everything. So anything that I say is my opinion. <laughs> and I know there's people out there that uh, have different ones, but, but Johnny, his record is, uh, is stellar. And I've seen him come in the most pressure filled situations and, and, uh, you know, he, he has earned everything that he's got in the game. And it was really interesting for me, by the way, to have a long discussion with Johnny Archer because some of these things in competition I have forgot. <laughs> you know, uh, I have forgot a great deal, even though when somebody mentions it, it fires off and, and probably like recreates a file that has been stored in my mind. And when I talked to Johnny more than anybody else, just to be quite frank, uh, he said some things at the, in a very simple way, but he said some things that really reminded me of how I used to compete. And that conversation right there, even though it was designed to be for the team and that's, that's the outcome I got, but in the process, he helped me quite a bit because there was a couple things. I haven't been playing a whole lot and I've only played a, you know, like five tournaments since I came back, uh, and, you know, so really in the last 15 years, I haven't played a whole lot except the last two years. I've been concentrating more and more on pool. But, you know, he said some things that, that reminded me of what I used to do and the how the momentum works and, and how you anticipate your shot and how you gauge your shot selection 
and when you go for the shot and when you don't and and how to manage the score and how that affects how you manage your game. And then some of these things that, that other people might hear and go, oh, that's no big deal. To me, it was because I realize how important uh, those things are. And like I said, there's a whole there's a whole big file that goes with something like when Johnny Archer talks to me about shot selection, it opens up something that would probably uh, fill 25% of a book. <laughs> so, you know, that's kind of how, I, you know, memories work is, you know, we're all anchored to other experiences we've had in our lives. So that was a really rewarding uh, to talk to Johnny. And Johnny does have his finger on the pulse of, of professional pool these days. And, and you guys know he's involved with, with some things. And, and uh, you know, at some point I may or may not get involved with that. But I did tell him at some point I think what he's doing and what I'm doing are going to come together. And they already have unexpectedly with this Moscone Cup. So um, now Shane Van Boning is someone that I've been around a lot, but I haven't talked to a great deal. But I have uh, kind of admired his game from afar. I know he was coming down to Dallas when he was really young and actually played in my pool room when he was like 14 or 15. I actually know his uncle. <laughs> and Kind of a funny story is uh, I was at the place his uncle worked, which uh, you know was a little club here in Dallas, and he said that he had this uh, nephew that played really good pool, and he was coming down to Dallas and wanted to play me, and and uh, you know, you know, just maybe had some questions or something. I, I don't remember exactly the details of the story, but I had heard that, you know. Many times, everybody's got a nephew or got a uncle or got a brother or got, you know, a friend, you know, that's some kind of champion player. And, you know, most often they're slightly exaggerating, let's just say, when it comes to, you know, a real professional. And, and I was on top of my game at the time. So uh, I really didn't pay much attention to it, to tell you the truth. And then later when he did come down, I didn't happen to be around at the time, but Roger Griffiths, who you guys both know is a top player and was on top of his game at that time, was at my pool room and played this kid, Shane Van Boning. And uh, I think they played for quite some time and broke even. I mean, Roger, and Roger might even have got beat, but Roger told me, he said, this kid is nothing normal. <laughs> he can really play. <laughs> and, uh, and I flashed back because I knew uh, Rocky is his uh, uncle, and I was like, wow, he was actually telling me the truth. I mean, he wasn't exaggerating. Because he told me, he said, this kid is going to be a champion one day. And there again, I'd heard that before, and, and you know, maybe you can believe it 10% of the time or even less, but uh, but that was spot on, especially now that we see with hindsight. And uh, So I've always had a... a a real healthy respect for Shane because I've kind of been watching him uh, from afar uh, through his career, and he's one that I was kind of watching before I ever got back into pool and was really impressed with his game but also his uh, his work ethic. I mean, he really works at his game. And uh, I saw him here in Dallas at a pool room, 
And I said, uh, Shane, you know, your break is like the best, you know, your 10-ball break is one of the best I've ever seen. I said, uh, how did you develop that? You know, because I was really interested, you know, because I wanted, I could see I needed to develop my 10-ball break if I was going to compete with these guys. And Shane says, just looks at me and says, practice. (laughs) I was like, well, (laughs) I was like, well, uh, how long do you practice? And he says, uh, oh, eight hours. I said, wow, you practice like eight hours a day? He looked at me and said, no, I practice eight hours on my break. (laughs) I practice practice 17 hours that day. And, and you know, it's funny because I played him later in Vegas at a tournament, and I have to admit, uh, that statement intimidated me because I, I played in the tournament and I knew I was just, you know, 85% on my game, you know, and, and still, you know, could win matches against pros. But when I played him, I was thinking, this guy's playing between 8 and 17 hours a day, you know, Honestly, yeah. CJ, do you really think you can be? You know, I mean, you know, sometimes you just because you know, obviously, I don't play for a living right now, and it's it's not that big a deal to to win or lose. And I uh, I was just had this moment of clarity with myself, and and uh, you know, the answer was no, <laughs> you know? no, you can't beat him. And 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 sure enough, you know, I won like the first two or three games and stayed up with him, and then missed a shot and sure enough he started playing really well so you know i'm just uh i'm glad to have shane on the team for sure because uh there again i'd rather be uh on his side than against him because i don't think anybody can argue that he is one of the best players in the world if not the best player in the world right this second and uh you know, his work ethic, it's not like he's going to lay off between now and the Moscone Cup. He's going to be playing. He's going to be playing dynamite, I think, when it, when the time comes. Um, I agree that your individuals are really exemplary. However, the American team has never seemed to be able to coalesce as a team as well as the European side does. In fact, it's been said that the European team prepares to win the Moscone Cup and the American team just shows up and expects to win. Do you have any thoughts yes. on this and 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 how do you if that is a situation is it a situation if it is a situation how do you turn it around? Yes, I uh I think you're spot on right there and and there again <clears throat> I I feel like I know the inside of why this happens. Uh we are we're very individual in our personalities and, and the way we've lived our lives, and, and that has a lot to do with why we've reached the highest levels in uh, pocket billiards, uh, quite honestly. So I, like I mentioned before, I can relate to why there is a problem and what the root of the problem is, so I do feel like I can come up with a solution, which which I already have, and that's being proactive and getting... The, uh, you know, I've talked to all these players, uh, three of them in depth, uh, and I will continue to, but really it was just to get an outline of uh, how to create something that I, uh, you know, that's often referred to as synergy. 
I mean, in business, I followed this formula that's called the synergistic effect, which basically, when you put people together, and this, I'm using this in reference to people. It can be used for other things. <clears throat> but in business, if you take a number of people and you get them basically what they would say on the same page, if they're going towards exactly the same outcomes, they know what they have to do, their job descriptions are very vivid, and, uh, you know, so these are, this is basically management. And uh, if this happens, you multiply the amount of people involved. So what my outcome is, you know, people talk about uh, the European players and the team has this teamwork and this camaraderie and, and all these words that really don't mean a whole lot, but they sound good. But when you mm-hmm. get down into what the specifics is, okay, they have camaraderie camaraderie, they have teamwork. What is this? What does it do? And uh, there again, you know, that formula will tell you. If they have five players and they're all going towards the same exact thing, they're dealing with 25 units of this teamwork or camaraderie, let's say. You know, because you have to address a number to it if you're going to understand it. And in the formula, if you have four of them going towards the same thing and you got one of them not, um, and you know there's been a player on the Muscogee Cup team through the years that will go unnamed, but that it kind of went his own way. And even though he's a great asset, sometimes, you know, I think the listeners out there may know who I'm talking about. And then and, and his name came up because, you know, in the practice room and in certain situations, he's a good example of four players going one way and then maybe even creating it where there's only three. But in, in this particular formula, if you've got four going in one direction and one that isn't, you multiply the four times four and subtract the one. So you end up with 15 instead of a potential 25. Just, so just to right. give you an idea of how specific I'm looking at this, I'm developing a plan to get the maximum energy before we ever walk into that room at your call. Um, we have, as far as the players are concerned, six players because I'm considered a player. I think if I wasn't a player, you know, if they pick somebody for a coach that wasn't a player, it would be a mistake because, you know, you couldn't get the potential 36 units, but like you can with us. And, you know, the European team certainly has the same ability, but I think as far as the teamwork goes, as far as the potential, we both have a maximum of 36 that we can get if we're 100%. And anything under that is, is uh, you know, going to take away uh, at a certain extent. And I'm just talking about the energy. But I'll tell you, if we go into your call, which I already know, I've been over there, I know how their fans are. They're rugby fans, and they're, you know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, as a matter of fact, when when I was over there before, uh, on the second day, they wouldn't serve any alcohol. And uh, we were down, uh, this was in Essex. Uh, Jerry, I don't know if you remember where that was uh, as far as the playing facility. I can't remember the name of yeah. it, but it was like a, uh, more like a basketball arena, I think, that they used. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Some, that's what it looked like. So you had to walk up all these stairs to get up to where the bar was. And I actually had a guy that saw my sparkly red, white, and blue vest, and he says, I want that vest. 
And I was like, well, you can't have this vest. <laughs> and so he comes up again, and he was like, I want that vest. This is kind of like a big, intimidating-looking guy, and he's got two friends with him. And I'm like, uh, you can't have that. I-, I play in this vest. So I went with some friends, and we walked up the stairs to the bar, and uh, he followed me up there. I didn't even realize it, but I was starting to feel pretty uneasy, and he had his two friends with him. And So he came up to me in front of the bar, and he said, I told you I want that vest. And he reached out and he grabbed my vest. And I think you guys know I've had a little martial arts training. <laughs> I did something to his arm, something to his throat, and something to his knee really quick. <laughs> it didn't hopefully hurt him too bad, but the, the bouncers came and surrounded him and everything. But this guy was actually trying to take my vest off. Now, I don't <laughs> think that's going to happen in your call, but I do know that you better have your ducks in a row. Because if any of our players are left out to, uh, and, you know, there's power in numbers. I mean, that crowd is going to be very difficult to play in front of if you feel like you're alone. So that, again, I'm just uh, I'm just really telling you how important I think it is for us all to be as one unit, is how I'm describing it, so that synergy number goes up as high as possible. Because when we walk into that room, we better have it together right then. I'm not talking about waiting for the first break. I'm talking about immediately. Because if we don't, that crowd, and you know it, Jerry, you've seen how they are. I haven't, I I have a really good idea, and I think that's one of the reasons they picked me to be the Moscone Cup captain as well, is I've been there, and I know what it is, and I know what it takes to win, and it's just a thing that I think you got to get the respect of the crowd with the team uh, before you can free up to play your best game. And that's, you know, without going into the details on how I'm going to do that, because that is confidential, I'm just saying that that has to be done however I can figure out how to do it. And I have a lot of resources available that I feel like uh, is going to help that I've learned along the way to achieve that let, outcome. <laughs> you know? let, let me have one follow-up before I turn it back over to Mike, and that is okay. one of the things that I've always noticed at the Moscone Cup is that there are some matches where uh, the players, player or players are quite comfortable out there by themselves. You know, early round matches, um, everybody's still full of self-confidence. Nobody's got any fear. And so they're they're fine being out there in the arena by themselves while their while their teammates are in the practice room practicing and and working on things for the next game and that sort of thing. But then there always seems to come a point where a player comes out for a critical match, and his teammates are in the practice room trying to get ready for their matches. But you can tell that he feels alone and he needs support out there in that arena, and. I just want oh have you ever noticed that and is it something that's in your thought process about what method of support do I give guys when they when they really need it? Well, I think it's a mistake to uh just take it for granted and just see, you know, if that happens or not. You know, as far as I'm concerned, uh you know, if a player just wants to come forward and say, listen, I'd rather you weren't there, I mean, that's one thing. But as far as I'm concerned, uh, I'm going to be there uh, for every match and, and I'm going to get a really good idea 
of, um, you know, I just, I, more than anything, you know, it, they have to know that the team is behind them, uh, whether they can see them or not. You see, it's, it's, sometimes you can create that synergy and that camaraderie, uh, <clears throat> before, like I said, I want to create it before we ever walk in the room. So, you know, there's there's a way to do that to where the player can be out there alone and still know that the whole team is behind him. I really don't want to leave that to chance, and and I, and I don't think they need every member of the team watching every shot they shoot. And oh, no. you know, yeah. I absolutely know that that's not the case because we can all play out there alone if we had to. But but I just want to create the uh, the atmosphere in our inner circle that we know that, um, you know, we're all on each other's side. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, uh, and this is something that I was talking to, to Johnny about, is, uh, you know, people used to ask me what my secret was to being able to, to play those high-dollar matches at a, at a high level. And, you know, I did have a really good track record. And I told him, I said, the answer may surprise you, but I said, I'm, I accept losing before I play. And pretty much, you know, across the board, people will think that that's kind of a negative thing. But uh, what I found when I was playing, you know, big gambling matches and big tournament matches, too, is if I get alone by myself and, 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 and basically lower my expectations and think, you know, realistically, you know, if I lose this match, is it going to change my life? Is it going to, you know, change how... Uh, another country operates its daily business or is it, you know, I mean, it, it's just, it really doesn't. So, you know, one thing that Johnny and I were talking about is, you know, we have to have realistic expectations. You know, if we put too much pressure on ourselves, we're our own worst enemy. Because what I've noticed is through the years that, that this pressure thing is an invisible, invisible thing. And there are things that, that affect it from the outside. But for the most part, people that, that uh, succumb to pressure are generating a lot of it internally. And uh, as far as the team goes, I mean, one of the conversations that I want to have with them as a group is, listen, there's going to be a lot of balls made. There's going to be balls missed. There's going to be games won. There's going to be games lost. There's going to be some of you that play great and some of you that don't play great in certain matches. That has to be okay. And I want to get all of them to agree that they don't really care at that particular moment which one they are. You know, are they going to be one that plays great or not so great, make all the balls, not make the balls? I'm going to keep it in a positive tone, if you can tell. But at the same time, I want to give per permission because there is going to be somebody that misses a crucial shot. Maybe. I mean, there again, I'm not going to do anything that, uh, but I'm just saying realistically, you know, you really have to, to take a, you have to make it to where the only pressure they feel is the outside pressure. And we can deal with that by being stronger internally. But if we start putting pressure on ourselves internally, that's where I think that happens, Jerry. I think that's where you guy, you got a guy out there that feels like he's all alone because he's generating that pressure internally because it hasn't been developed as a team properly. That's mm -hmm. my opinion. 
Uh, CJ, the last time we talked to you, uh, and and I apologize for for moving away from Moscone Cup, uh, but the last time we talked, you were working on a documentary that uh, involved the the million dollars with with Earl and and the you know the balls that he or the the racks that he had ran, and then uh, I also hear you've got a new instructional DVD coming out. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Yes, I had uh, you know two projects I was working on. I think I mentioned that at the beginning of uh, of this, and and one of them was the instructional video uh, DVD that that uh, was really first on the priority list, and then I did a two hour interview with Earl Strickland, and I interviewed uh, Max Eberly and uh, Jay Helford, who were also there. And Jay, as you know, was the tournament director that was there when Earl ran the eleven racks. Um, that's one of the things I had to kind of put on the shelf. I had to make a decision, and I went ahead and uh, completed my instructional uh, DVD, which is getting ready to go to press right now. So it'll be out in the next uh, two or three weeks, however long it takes them to uh, package them and shrink wrap them and whatnot. But uh, the real Strickland one, I, I just, I don't, I want to give it the uh, the most consideration because it is still, in my opinion, and uh, many will agree, some won't agree, but I think it's the most uh, historic feat ever in uh, pocket billiards. I mean, for him to run that 11 racks in a row for a million dollars the first day uh, was incredible. And, you know, they, they I actually, I'm on the forum there at uh, AZ Billiards, and I see people arguing over whether the odds were correct or not. Well, Nobody had done it before, and nobody's done it after. So I don't know if you could say that the odds were less or more, but to run 11 racks in a row in a match, uh, it's been done, um, you know, there again, I get different stories, but I don't know anybody that's personally ran 11 racks in a professional event, at least in the United States, where it's documented, especially, if, you know, with, with I've got the last five games on, uh, on video. So... Um, I want to do it justice is what I'm saying. I don't want to rush through it. When I found out that I was picked for this Moscone Cup, uh, suddenly my full plate uh, started, you know, I could see parts of it falling off and, and it affecting this million-dollar documentary. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue working on it, but that's the one that I think I'm going to wait until... Uh, uh, after the beginning of next year to complete, because I, I still need to interview uh, uh, who was Earl's wife at the time, Lisa, and she's in North Carolina, and I've got uh, some other people on the East Coast, uh, uh, Nick uh, Menino, who he played. So it's not something that I can that I can do right here in Dallas. I have to travel to do it, and it takes time, and it takes effort, and it takes a focus and attention away from this Moscone Cup, and I really want to do, I want to do it the most justice, because the other could actually wait. I mean, people that, that are waiting to see it, you know, it's it's not going to change their life any if it doesn't come out uh, this month, but it's out in the next couple months. But this Moscone Cup is a pressing issue. But uh, with that being said, my instructional video is done, and I'm really happy and excited to actually get it out there, because it's... Uh, some techniques and systems that I've been working on in developing my game again. Like I said, like talking to Johnny Archer, there's a lot of things that I've had to remember that I used to do 
that used to be more natural. And even though I covered uh, I covered 53 things on my first Ultimate Pool Secrets that <clears throat> came out, um, but there was a lot left that I didn't disclose at the time. Some of it was just, I just didn't know how to explain it as well as I do now. And uh, some of it, quite frankly, I didn't want people to know <laughs> because I was still using it, you know. And, and there's some systems, you know, I mean, that's... Uh, whether somebody believes it or not, I mean, I, I hear people say there's no more secrets. All the secrets are out. There's no techniques that somebody doesn't know about. Well, uh, I don't agree with that. I mean, there's things that the inner circle of the top gamblers knew that really, I'm not saying people don't know them, but they haven't really been described very well, I don't believe. <clears throat> and some of those is... You know, I mean, we, we have an ability to, to create zones that make the pocket bigger. We have, uh, and there again, not literally, but, but it's all about margin for error and creating zones and, and how you hit the cue ball in a particular way so that even if you're off a little bit, you still make the shot. I mean, some of the things that the professionals are able to do on a consistent level is because of the knowledge they have. It's not because they hit the ball exactly straight every time, but they do play and um, adapt in a way that if they don't hit the ball straight, they can still make the shot. And, and, and a lot of it's your perception of, of, of how you play the game. And I've told other people, you know, it's not that I'm a better person or that I got better hand-eye coordination or, or anything like that, even though I am kind of naturally gifted, but when I look at how I play the game, it's just a different game than other people play because of a lot of the perception that I've developed. And I learned a lot from, you know, uh, some of my old road partners, you know, like uh, Omaha John and Weldon Rogers and some of these older guys that made a living playing pool that really knew where the rubber met the road as far as how to play the game because we did it for money. I mean, it was a real serious deal back then. It wasn't just about winning tournaments. And then, you know, playing against uh, Efren and Bustamante when he first came over and playing, you know, the Johnny Archers and the Mike Sigals. And, and, you know, we all have some certain common denominators that we do alike. We look different doing them. You know, our body bodies are different, obviously. And, but it's a lot like golf, you know. The swings look different but there is a common denominator that makes them the same, and most of it's how they're actually going through the ball and how they're actually playing the percentages and the zones and, and creating more margin for error for their game. So, I mean, that's what I'm trying to show uh, uh, in a very vivid fashion in this new DVD, and, and I'm pretty happy with how it came out, and I think uh, it's going to really make uh, a splash here <laughs> when I do release it. Well, CJ, we've really enjoyed talking to you today. Uh, sounds like you've got uh, your hands full with this Moscone Cup, and you have a lot of plans out there. I hope they all come to fruition. Um, Thanks. And I look forward to seeing you over in London. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's going to be fun. When it comes right down to it, you know, as long as we're prepared, you know, we're going to uh, be free to have a good time and uh, and have some healthy uh, competition. And, and if everything goes right, I think we'll bring home that Moscone Cup. That's the... Uh, that's the goal, and uh, I'm sticking to it. <laughs> I certainly hope so. CJ, thanks very much for talking to us. We'll see you right down the road.
All right, Jerry, Mike, have a good day. Talk to you later. Well, uh, I think I said before we talked to him, that's going to be a different kind of captain. Yes, it is. And, uh, you know, he's, he's got a lot of energy, CJ does, and if he can transfer that energy to his boys, uh, he can do them a world of good. Hey, we've got another great guest hanging on the line, and we don't want to keep this man hanging. He might <laughs> cause uh, the earth to tremble. It's the earthquake. Keith McCready. Well, we told you at the very beginning of this broadcast that we had two great interviews for you today, and indeed we do. Our second gentleman waiting on the line for us right now is Keith Earthquake McCready. Keith, how are you, buddy? Uh, pretty good. How about yourself? Oh, can't complain too much. Um, did Sandy uh, hurt you people at all up there in that Washington area? Yeah, you know we we sort of got lucky a little bit. I mean, it uh, I, we it didn't hit us directly, but we still had seventy five and eighty uh, eighty seventy five to eighty five mile an hour winds at certain spurts, and there was quite a bit of damage. But actually, we got spared our power. You know, we were one of the lucky ones. I guess you know there was well, lots of got, other people. Lots of other people. Yeah, if you got uh, power and lost. heat, you're in pretty good shape. Yeah, that's what I'm. Yeah, I've, I've been watching that news and everything. It's been awful in the other yeah. places. Man. Yeah. Yeah. But well, let's get off present day and take take our uh, listeners back a few years. Um, okay. You were obviously a legendary road artist at the game of pool when you think back on your all your years on the road and everything and tournament play and and and, and san francisco and all of that what's the first thing that pops into your mind what's your favorite memory about the game uh my favorite memory um well it was you know just i'd have to go back to uh uh uh, the the palace days. I would have to go back to then. I mean, I uh, I sort of grew up around uh, uh, you know some real good players back then. I grew up around Larry Lascotti, Cole Dixon, Richie Florence. Wade Crane would always come down or, or play Richie on the weekends down there, and and we had a payball game that would go on three and four days at sometimes. And, uh, the gambling was over the over the roof, and uh, I mean you could come in there broke one day, and it was you know eighty to a hundred backers lined up all around the place. The place was all smoke filled. I mean it was it was it was what you call a, a you know sort of looked like in the movie Minnesota Fats where all the smoke, and, but there was <laughs> lots of action. I sort of that's what sort of you know goes to my mind, you know as far as like growing up and uh, uh, being around that crew, I, I was fortunate enough to be able to watch Wade Crane play. Not Wade Crane, uh, but Irving Crane. You know, uh, Luther Lasseter. Uh, when you know they used to play straight pool over there at the uh, 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 some place over there in Hollywood. They played. Uh, I forget exactly where it was at, but it was. Uh, uh, you know, yeah, that was the that's how it all started. Yeah, that was Fred Whalen's straight pool tournament. Yeah, right. There you go. Yeah. But, uh, and then, you know, uh, straight pool was a thing back then, you know. And then it just, you know, started going into the nine ball and uh, started.
stuff like that, you know, as years went on. But uh, that's, that's sort of like how it all started, you know, the scrape pool and then the... Uh, well, since you brought it up, I want to follow up on that just a little bit. You, you mentioned payball, which was yeah. a great game of the past that you never see played anymore. Um, can you tell people what payball was and uh, and, and uh, about some of the action games you had uh, using that discipline? Uh, payball uh, payball was a game to where it was played on a real tight snooker table, and uh, uh, you would pay on every ball. One, two, three, four, five, six. The sixth ball was doubled. And um, you would have like seven or eight people in the game. Sometimes they had ten, but ten, ten, ten was a little too much. because You, gotta, you know, you might uh, go uh, six or seven games without a shot, you know. <laughs> and so it was, yeah. And you had to have a bankroll to play in the game, you know, because they would uh well, they play, you know, three and six, five and ten, you know. And when you total it all and double on the run out, when you total it all up, you know, like say if you're playing five and ten and uh, you've got, say, eight players in the game and say you run out, that's $70 yeah. times uh, eight, that's 560 which was quite a bit of money back then, you know. But, uh, but those games would go on for days, you know. I'd start on Thursday. <laughs> And uh, you know, play play a couple days. I could I could uh, play a couple days and then poop out, go to sleep, wake up, and the game still be going on. It was crazy. Well, I understand I mean, you busted a big payball game when you were only like fifteen or sixteen years old. I broke a few of them. I, you know, there was you know a lot a lot of the. Actually, a lot of the people from the East Coast came over there. They tried the game. They all everybody got broken. You know, they couldn't. Uh, it was just a. It was tough. You know, for them to win in that type of game. You know, it had. It was always the rounders. You know, it was like Larry, Cole, me, uh, and actually Grady was in the game quite a bit. Grady Matthews. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, uh, you know just. You know, just those type of me, Grady, Larry Lascotti, Cole. That was a, like automatic players, and then you had you know Wade Crane came in and played a few times. He couldn't win at it. Uh, you know, just everybody tried it. Billy Cardone tried it. He he became uh, pretty attached to the game. He liked the game, but he didn't win at it. Uh, and that, that's when you know when those guys could really play. You know. Well, Keith, I'm curious, you know, talking about way back when, you know, we've talked to a number of players and when we ask them, you know, back in the heyday of gambling, who was mm -hmm. it that you really didn't want to gamble with? You know, the, the one player that comes to mind that they wanted no part of and, and most of them say you. Um, I yeah, I was tough back then. Um, I mean, every 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 everybody that uh, traveled through there got broke, <laughs> and they and they uh, just uh, they sort of wanted to uh, duck me on a on a four by eight with a big cue ball. They had big cue balls back then, and uh, uh, my four and a half by nine wasn't quite as strong as my uh, four by eight in bar table action, but it was still good enough to compete. You know. And uh, 
you know, my break always sort of held me back. It's like, you know, I told you, if I had Earl's break back then, well, I mean, I could have given anybody in the world a seven ball, you know. But uh, I would, uh, but on the on the bar tables, my break was just as equal because of the big cue ball, and you could, you know, get the balls mixing over and turning over and make balls on the break and, you know, squat the ball. And, you know, there was, I run a lot of racks back then, you know, a lot of sevens and eights and, you know, we run, we played sets, you know, we'd run out sets on each other, you know. It was, uh, uh, it was pretty strong, you know. Were there but, players back then that, that you had? I mean, certainly you're not going to say that there was a player you were afraid of, but, I mean, what was your toughest game back then? My toughest, I, my toughest player back then, uh, it had to be been, uh, uh, well, it, it's hard, you know. They were, you know, any time you went in the pit, and or you know, or gambling or something like that, uh, everybody was tough, you know. Because I was always, always having to make the games tough, you know. I always had to spot everybody, and uh, I, I was having to give like moral pie as a seven, seven ball. I give Kim Davenport the seven. Uh, uh, then we tried it with the six and seven, six on my break, seven on his. But everybody, all Ernesto Dominguez, all them guys, uh, Moro Paez, all them guys got the seven ball. You know, nobody, we never ever played even. You know, and uh, but uh, that, and then when we went to a bigger table, the games, I would have to uh, like represent myself with the same type of game as I did on a bar table four by eight or with a big two ball and then have to go to the big table and have to play them like almost the same way, which was really hard, you know. You know, I had to lose a little bit. Of, I had to, you know, lose a little bit of money to get the games down to where they were manageable maybe, like with the eight and nine on a big table and then, then have to go back to the seven ball on a bar table. <laughs> it was, But uh, I would have to say, you know, they said that that, uh, when Canella came out, they said he was, you know, Canella, uh, they said he was the best ball table player in the world at that time, and I just grilled him. <laughs> Boy, he, had to, he had to quit after two sets, or he wouldn't even think about playing anymore. It's hard to say who was, uh, because, you know, a lot of times they didn't shoot, so, you know, like, you say this guy or that guy, well, I mean, if they don't, they don't get to shoot, you know, you don't really know how good they are, you know. But That's true. I mean, and that's the way it was back then. It was all about packages back then. But yeah. uh, uh, it's hard. My toughest opponent, I mean, uh, Joe Salazar was tough on them bar tables. I was giving oh, yeah. him the call. He was, he was the, uh, probably the closest one back then as far as bar pool goes and this and that. Jerry Brock tried it. He got broke. Uh, what about Buddy? Good. Buddy was a pretty damn good Buddy. Box yeah, play. Buddy. Oh, well, Buddy, I guess you probably have to say, when I was growing up, Buddy was probably the most... I had the most respect for Buddy probably than anybody. You know, because I learned a lot from uh, watching Buddy and his, uh, 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 you know, stroke and his finesse and uh, his technique toward... <laughs> Come on, Mickey. His technique from the uh, cue ball to the object ball was uh, 
you know, real strong. And I like, you know, watching, you know, watching his eye movement from the, the cue ball to the object ball. And I learned a lot watching Buddy. There's a legend I in the pool world that says when you were a teenager, you wore a T-shirt around that said the world gets the eight. Is there any truth to that? Yeah, I did have a T-shirt probably back in about 1976 uh, uh, 70, 70, or 76 or 77. Yeah, there was this uh, 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 T-shirt guy that was, you know, making T-shirts back then, made the T-shirt for me, and I wore it around and it said the world's got the eight, and, <laughs> and it just uh, sort of, uh, you know, just... Uh, uh, sort of stuck, stuck on me for a while. And then... There's also another legend about you, as a young man, sleeping under Big Bertha, the big six I by twelve table. Was, yeah, I was down here. I'd, I'd play a couple of days. I would play a couple of days and then uh, 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 go to sleep, and uh, and then wake up. The game would still be going on and. Uh, uh, and just start all over again. I understand you weren't the un- only youngster who would catch occasionally catch a nap under that table. I was the only uh, youngster. No, that you, no, that you were not. Uh, I understand that uh, possibly Robin Bell and uh, oh yeah, some up, Robin, some Robin other locals would nap every, out there. Everybody fell asleep in the pool room. We used to have a place over there in Newport Beach where we had uh, sofas and. Uh, Everybody fall asleep over there, and you know, while the action was going on, they wake up. The action still be going on, but if, there wasn't no pool room probably as good as the palace over there in Bellflower. Yeah, you know, as far as action goes, I mean, there was more action in that place than probably any place I've ever seen. And I've been to the rack when the rack was going strong, and, but I mean, there was more bigger money people at the rack, but there wasn't as many people with money as as much as the billiard powers, you know. What, what do you think is the biggest betting situation that you've ever been involved in? I mean, where you, not just your action, but the action of the railbirds and the backers and, and all that. What do you, well, it had the, to be, it had to be the rack and the palace. Uh, I played, uh, I play, well, well, actually I played that Rosenbaum over there. I beat him out of 360,000. We ended up playing, uh, uh, you know, we were playing twenty-five thousand a game, and we were playing uh, races for a hundred thousand at the end. Then we went back to playing by the game. Uh, they were strong. That's when I had Harry backing me. But, Harry, okay, yeah, Harry. Platt, uh, Harry yeah. Platters. Yeah. Well, that that must have been interesting because I understand that they kept the door to the rack locked. And they sort of like would take a vote whether or not to let people in. Well, there were certain people they wouldn't let in. If they didn't have gamble and they didn't have money, they wouldn't be let in. It was, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, there wasn't no uh, shortstop going to come in there and, unless they knew somebody or, uh, you know, that was involved in, uh, 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 you know, the gambling there. They wouldn't let them in. I mean, who, who uh, you know, who the hell wants to have all them detectives running around that won't bet a quarter? Yeah, you know? right. I mean, it's just, you know, you know, I mean we're good at it. I, I mean, 
you know, they can do that. They can do their thing somewhere else. It's just not their kind of a place for that kind of environment for them. You know, and that's the way they felt in in Detroit. You know, at the palace, it was different. It was all wide open, but yeah, in, at the at the rack, it, you know, you know, if you didn't know somebody, or uh, like I, I, when I got in there, uh, uh, I got introduced from one guy to another guy. And then put me on Jonesy, you know, to stake me, and uh, uh, that's how I got in. Or I wouldn't have got in, you know. You know, Keith, being <clears throat> certainly, you know, you and Jerry have have witnessed more of that high dollar gamble that used to go on than than I have. Um, what do you think is is the biggest thing that has made that go away because i mean we we just don't have that anymore uh i uh, i don't probably the uh well the people aren't people aren't the same as as you know they were in the 70s and uh the 80s you know early 80s the people aren't the same a lot of people got more tournament inclined uh you know you Needless to say, you had them Filipinos knocking off everybody. Uh, uh, nobody wanted to come to the tournament. I mean, because every time you looked up, you got to pay seven or eight Filipinos. I mean, it costs money to go to those tournaments, and you you, you can't uh, if you if you could if you if you don't have some way to make some money type in type of ga- in a gambling situation or something like that, it's hard to make it. You know, you're going to spend. Uh, you know. You either got to have some type of business, or you got to have some backing. You know, a pool player nowadays it doesn't have the money to go to all them tournaments because, you know, if you're not Shane Van Boeing or your Efren Rays or uh, 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 what's call it, uh, uh, Efren or Alex or Arcola. You know, those just those four: Shane, Arcola, Efren, and Alex. If you're not those type of guys, I mean, you you, you have to rely on some type of gambling. I mean, you, you just can't make it with the, the way the money is in the pool. You know, in my opinion, it's real hard. I mean, that's why you need them backers. That's why you need that action. I don't know what's happened to it. See, myself. I think uh, myself. I've never had a problem of getting games or getting action. If there was a hundred people like me, well, there'd be action all the time. But they're not. They're careful. They're looking for the nuts. Uh, 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 and it's uh, uh, they just uh, or uh, you know like you know you got all those guys from England this and that and. That. Neil Stahan came on, you know, the, uh, the Thurston Holman. Uh, I mean, look at look here. They can't come over here. They can't afford it. You know, and look how good they play. And, you know, they have to rely on some type of business. They can't rely on the pool no more. They have to get a sponsor to come over because they can't afford it. Um, it's, you know, and like you got your Shane, you got your, like Shane probably plays his own money in the tournament because he's won so much money. Uh, but like that, Arcola, you know, Alex, Efren, you know, they all got sponsored to come over and play and all these things, you know. Right. 
You know, you, you yeah. talk about the players playing on their own money and that sort of thing. Um, I always remember at Derby, one of the last derbies that you went to, um, and one of the young young guns was there, and it was just his tournament. And and he, you know, the story going around was how he had won fifty or sixty thousand, and he was playing a big game while the finals of the nine ball was going on. And I remember overhearing a conversation that you had with him, and you asked him, "Well, just how much of that did you end up with?" And he told you a figure. And I remember you you kind of, you know, talking to him like a, like a a father would talk to his son, and you said, "Son, you, you got to learn how to." how to play on it with a backer for a little while. And then when you get ahead, you start playing on your own money. I mean, can you talk a little bit about that? I believe in order for people, pool players nowadays, if they've got some backing, that's fine. But when they start making their own money, I think it's important for them to take, to be able to take the next steps is to be able to get in there, play on their own money, and be able to be successful doing that. I think with 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 those races over the track like that, you're going to get better and better and better and better because you're fading the heat on your own. You're learning how to take the pressure, and the pressure's got uh, pressure's got a lot to do with it. You've got to be able to execute under that pressure, or you're never you're you're never ever going to be able to take the next step to the next step to the next step. You have to be able to perform under that pressure. For where when you get in the spotlight, you can perform and it comes more natural. You know, the, the lights and the cameras always sort of, uh, uh, it didn't it didn't make, it, it sort of made me uncomfortable. It didn't make me nervous, but it would make you uncomfortable. And then when you get put under the heat and everything by somebody, you know, hits you with four or five racks, and now you, you, you get a couple tough shots, you have to learn how to uh, get through that and be able to come with that shot and be comfortable doing it. I mean, it's, it's not easy. So, you know, and I think what, 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 what happens to be able to be able to do that is to be able to get the seasoning of playing your own money under the pressure, getting used to the pressure, and then being able to come to the next level where you have to play under the lights, under, in the camera, to where you don't get nervous and you you, you know you, start, you get a little lump in your throat. I think that's important. And in order to do that, I believe that you have to be able to take steps and then get to that uh, to where you don't get nervous. I think it's important. You know, like if you you know like if you get up and play somebody and say you're playing two and three hundred dollars a set a session. You know, say you know back back then. You know, two or three, say if you played three hundred, seven ahead for three hundred. Well, when you get in there and you play for five thousand, well, th that game changes now all of a sudden because if, if I mean, I I would know if, if my opponent could bet money or he couldn't bet money. And for two or three hundred, he might never miss a ball. But you get him betting five thousand, you put him under the pressure. Well, then all of a sudden the game changes. And uh, and I think. Through the steps of being able to, uh, you know, it's steps. You got to uh, go from little money to bigger money to bigger money and bigger money, and get the seasoning going to where you don't get nervous playing for that money. Then, you know, then if you decide to where you're going to play pool uh, in tournaments, 
you're gonna you're gonna be seasoned for that. And I was lucky enough to where, you know, I had I got I got seasoned real young at a real young age, which was, you know, very rare. You know, there's certain people that have come up lately. I guess there are a couple kids that have come up. You know, they had the seasoning around the '80s and you know, uh, early '90s and this and that. Well, they're better because of that. You know, but there's only you know there's only a few naturals out there, you know that uh, that have got really a chance to make it. You know, in my opinion. Yeah. But it takes it takes beatings, it takes self perseverance. You have to be able to uh, uh, you have to be able to get in on gunfights. You have to become a gunfighter. You know, it's just it's just just the way it is, and you 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 know, and you can't have no fear. I mean, you have to take no prisoners, have no fear, and uh, just get in there. And uh, uh, you, know, you got to take it from them. They're, what you got to see to yourself is they're trying to take something from you that belongs to you. And I think you go in there with that kind of an attitude and this and that, and you have that seasoning under your belt. Like well, Shane, you know, Shane's a little different. Shane practiced and practiced and practiced. And weeded his way into in uh, 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 what he is today, I believe. You know, but he but he put spent a lot of time, and it takes time. You have to spend that time to be able to get to that level. You know, and if, and and a lot of people just you know they're not you know their coordination just might not be quite as good. You know, that's why you have your weaker players and your stronger players. You know. Most most of most of the players uh, that play real good are naturals, like Alex, natural, uh, yeah. Ephraim, natural, Shane took a little bit of time, but now he's you know, but it, it took more work I think for Shane to get as good as he did than it than it did me, you know. But uh, it just it, it and it takes it takes battle scars. You got to. But I don't. They don't do it like they. They don't do it now like they used to. You know, you you don't uh, you don't see people putting up all their money in their pocket and getting up there and betting all they got anymore. You know, you know what I'm saying? It yeah. just it yeah. just doesn't happen that way anymore with a pool player, except for a very few of them. You know, yeah. I also noticed. Uh being able to watch some of your tournament matches there at the end of your career, um, as opposed to feeling the pressure, you seem to be having a good time out there. Well, I tried, I try to have a good time. You know, I try to, you know, it's not the end of the world, you know, if you lose, but as long as, I mean, I, I try to take, try to have a good time. And it takes sort of helps take a little bit of the pressure off. I mean, because everybody gets nervous, you know, in, in front of them cameras. I mean, I have I've played good, I've played good behind it, and I've played not so good behind it. You know, uh, it's I I try to have a good time. I I try to be loose to where I can. Uh, uh, I don't want to be all tight, you know. Especially you know when everybody's watching under a microscope. I mean. People have their opinions about me, some good, some bad. I like to be, be loose and uh, be confident. And uh, uh, I like to, I, I enjoy playing pool. You know, I have fun. I try to have fun when I'm playing pool. 
a lot of people are, are different and, you know, they like to, you know, they, everybody's got a different mode about them, you know, some good, some bad. And there's a lot of guys I don't like to, you know, play because of who they are, what they are. And, you know, I don't, I usually don't try to make games with them or try to enjoy playing them, you know. Right. But uh, there's certain guys that I enjoy playing. And, uh, you know, I loved playing Louie years ago. Uh, he was a lot of fun to play with. Sing uh, Louie Louie? Yeah. I mean, yeah, Louie was Robert. a great, I mean, you know, you know, he was just, and he, he was a you know shot making little son of a gun you know he was always fun to play you know but but he he was like me he you know he 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 was a little bit of a showman liked to come with him shots make them make everybody happy have fun I mean I was I was sort of the same way you know well speaking of having fun. We've gone way beyond our time limit, but I can't get away without asking you one final question. Okay. You spent some time on the road. Uh-huh. Who who was your favorite road partner of all your trips? And I don't care if that's another player or if it's a backer or just a friend coming along for the ride. Who was your favorite road partner of all time? Who would you like to, to, to spend time with uh, in Poole? Because you got to get along with your road partner or you're in trouble. Well, I never really, you know, I... Uh, well, growing up, I, it was probably Cole, Cole Dixon, growing up, you know. I, yeah. There was just something about him that, uh, 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 you know, that sort of, you know, I sort of emulated, you know. I just, I liked Cole. Uh, we sort of grew up together. Uh, uh, I had, uh, let's see who else, I liked I liked watch Larry Lascotti, another one, was a good friend of mine. I like growing up around yeah. him. But as far as backers go, my two main backers were uh, Mark B. Tor and uh, uh, Harry Pratis. I mean, and they would let me bet as high as I could fly. And uh, it was always a good thing, you know, to be able to yeah. have a couple. Then I had then I had other backers, you know, that would that would come down there and you know always, you know, every backer had to you know, sort of a, a stamp on them as far as, uh, you know, if they were a $500 man, $1,000 man, or whatever. You know, it wasn't hard to get, you know, 300 or 500 to play sets or $1,000 to play sets. But as far as the big money goes, uh, uh, I always liked uh, going to places with Mark and uh, Harry. But as far as growing up, uh, I guess you would have to say that Cole was probably one of my idols, you know. Did you ever um, hook up with uh, Mike Siegel? I played him a couple times. I, I played him over there. He'd come over there to uh, Nutty Nero's. That's when I was beating everybody. And uh, he'd come over there to Nutty Nero's, and I'd give him the last two on a bar table. Uh, I, uh, he had me, like, near the hill or something like that. And uh, I beat him two sets, and he never played again on the bar table, and then I give Larry Hubbard the eight and nine on the bar table, and I beat him a session for 6000 And uh And then Larry Hubbard went right from there to uh, uh, Oklahoma City and beat Matlock even on a bar table after I'd just given him the eight. <laughs> yeah. Keith, yeah. we have really enjoyed it. Thank you very, very much for your time. Um, hope okay. to see you uh, sometime yeah, well, at a pool event. Yeah, well, hopefully, you know, 
you know, it, it costs a lot of money to go to them tournaments and this and that. And, and, and if I can't compete, I'm not going to play. You know, so I yeah. would have to, uh, you know, with this online poker and online this and that, I mean, it makes it pretty easy to uh, just stay at home and, you know, I'm gambling every day, it seems like, but, you know, I don't have to go through, you know, as much aggravation a lot as, as I do being around the pool, you know, but I miss it. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I miss it a lot, you know, yeah. and I hope to get out again here real soon. But we just got a puppy, and she's been, my girl's been working a lot, and, it, and this little puppy's a, a, a little monster, so <laughs> I have to watch him. So he doesn't chew up everything while she's working and stuff. So I'm like sort of got dog duty right now for a little while. Well, uh, enjoy life, Keith. We certainly enjoyed talking to you. Okay. And you guys have fun and, uh, you know, feel free to call anytime. Thank you very much. Have a good weekend. Bye-bye. Oh, okay. Bye-bye. Well, Keith sounds like he's having fun in life, uh, but I think Keith has always had fun in life. That he has. Um, I, I've, I'm sure that he's been unhappy at tournaments, but I've never seen it. Um, <laughs> I, 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 it saddens me to to know that I came into this game in the media role as late as I did in his career, because the the one or two moments that I had a chance to watch him play in person, I would have loved to have seen him, you know, throughout his entire career. Oh yeah, Keith just moved from one adventure to another. But it was great talking to him, and I'm sure we'll have him back as a guest uh, real soon again. Hey, we do want you folks to remember out there, Run Out Radio is sponsored. It's brought to you by the TAP League and by Lucasi Hybrid Cues. Uh, please consider them when you're making purchases in those areas. Uh, Mike, you got anything else for this week, or shall we sign out? No, just a real quick programming note. Uh, for those of you who listened to our uh, weekly news update prior to the U.S. Open, we, of course, won't be doing one this week because we did a full-blown run-out radio show, but you can look for one next week. Uh, not sure who we'll talk to and not sure what we'll talk about, but we'll be here in about a week. Well, there's always something to talk about. But for right now, it's Jerry Forsyth and Mike Howerton. We're signing off, and uh, we'll see you down the road.